This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmood, currently from California. This is your co-host Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is Tesh Durbasla from Greenwich, Connecticut. Tesh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been a little bit of a struggle getting everybody on the same page with all the time zones that all of us have been living with the COVID release. We are no longer tied to our desks. It's kind of nice to be able to travel a little bit. So before we get started, could you tell us at a very high level, what are you up to these days? Well, that's a great question. There's this little place on the planet. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Africa. And they have about 17 to 20% of the world's population, but only use about one to one and a half percent of the digital infrastructure that's available to the planet in terms of bandwidth and wireless technology. And I said, as a person who's been building digital infrastructure for the last two and a half decades of my career, that would be a nice place to end it. I'm on the other side of 50. I've only got so many good years left in me. And I figured I'd put them to work over on that side of the planet. And so for the last 16, 17 months, I've been CEO of Africa Data Centers, which is our primary focus is to be the largest pan-African data center provider. Uh, we currently operate in Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, and a marketing agreement in Togo. We've just announced expansions into Ghana and Rwanda, and soon you'll hear us make some announcements in North Africa and another one in the Southern African region. That's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. So just out of curiosity, the fact that you're an entrepreneur, you've been doing this for a few years. Why now? We have been talking about Africa as the secondary market. That's where the future is. Why now? Is it COVID-driven? What were some of the driving factors of you actually taking it a bit more seriously and spending the time, effort, and money in enhancing and developing that market? Sure. Well, I was unemployed, so it was, seemed like a good time to go start it. <laughs> like those unemployment checks weekly. No, I'd left, I'd left my previous organization in, in September of 2020 during the pandemic. And I had a year to think about where to go on the planet and what to do. And like many... Uh, folks in my position, there were lots of private equity, individual landowners, folks are saying, hey, let's go build data centers in Northern Virginia or the flat markets in Europe. And I was kind of like, been there, done that, got, I've got 75 different golf shirts of all the vendors who have given them to us. So didn't need any more of those. It was, where can I make a difference and where could I be purposeful. And part of what your podcast does is get people interested in the science and technologies, engineering and mathematics or STEM all over the planet. And Africa has got a booming market of kids between the age of 18 and 35. So at the end of this decade, 2030, there'll be roughly 1.4 billion people on the continent of Africa with roughly 400 million people between the ages of 18 and 35. So take that with the earlier statistic I gave you. 
So you get 20% of the world's population, but only 1% of the kind of internet use. You see that you've got this convergence of two great things, right? You've got a young, educated population. I call it the restless youth of Africa. This restless youth wants to do things and they don't want to do them like their parents and grandparents. Take the fact that the infrastructure still needs to catch up with their ambition. That means there's a great opportunity. So the why now, it just seemed like this was the right place to be. And there is a lot greater interest now from the West to spend money. I think the East had spent, outspent the West in Africa for the last decade. But recently you saw the appointment of Meg Whitman, former eBay CEO, Hewlett Packard CEO. So a technologist in her roots. And, and she's now the ambassador of Kenya. You recently seen announcements by the, the White House to talk about investments in Angola and in Ghana. So there's definitely an opportunity now that probably didn't exist a decade ago or even five years ago. Yes, and what are some of the challenges? What are well, some of the challenges that yeah, you... Before we get to the challenges, just one, one, just one point. You see a lot of these stories about emerging markets such as, such as Africa. And you have a lot of places that are incredibly impoverished that don't have the basic utilities that, that we have. Sparse electricity, to a certain extent, sparse running water and things like that. But you notice many of them have cell phones. They've just kind of leapfrogged a lot of that infrastructure and, and gone straight to modern day communications infrastructure. And they're all interacting with stuff that's not there. All the stuff is in Northern Virginia that they're probably interacting with, or certainly in Europe and Southeast Asia. How much of that is the driver in trying to kind of bring all that infrastructure to, I'll use it, the Horn of Africa? Right, right. No, that's fantastic. And we only went seven minutes without using the word horn yet. So that was good. I would tell you, so you capture it really well. The other thing I would add to that, though, is no matter where you go in Africa, you'll see people on buses, on public transportation, walking the streets. And what are they doing? They're looking down at their phone. And maybe they're not purchasing it the way we do, where you buy a monthly plan through Vodafone or Verizon or Barclay Airtel or one of those big global providers. They're buying a SIM card and it's from MTN and they're putting it in and they're buying data minutes literally by the day, but they're using it and they're on it. So the digital education is happening, right? And uh, you see it in North America and in Western Europe, kids are on iPads before they even learn to talk. Now, what's going to happen next is these applications are, what drive, are what, what's driving society. And I look at it very similar to we did many years ago when North America was being founded where did a lot of the workers end up going? They went into the infrastructure business because you needed the plumbing, you needed railroads, you needed trains, you needed highways, and you went to work for the government, right? Because those were secure jobs and you were getting experience. Well, this next generation can come work into our industry, right? Because we are building the fiber roads. We're building the airways for, for wireless. We're building all of that infrastructure still needs to be built. And all of the applications that will help lives get easier. So five years ago, when you're trying to open a bank account as a young Kenyan, it would take 
anywhere from a week to 15 days. Go back and forth, get things signed in triplicate. Now, a young person can open an account, any person can open an account in 24 hours. That's very powerful. So I'm encouraging, the way we think about it is we're encouraging people to get involved in this infrastructure the same way you got it involved in the old infrastructure of yesteryear. Yeah. Well, so you can actually open an account in a matter of minutes now. <laughs> and it's not in Kenya. It's, you could. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very exciting to hear what you just said, because it fits in with what we are trying to accomplish as a foundation and mm-hmm. what the, the platform is all about and creating opportunities for the next generation and making these freeways and byways for the futures. Let's step back a little bit. I'm learning a little bit about yourself, looking at your profile online, a major in political science to technology. How did that go about? How did that happen? Well, it's like any other kid who's got ADHD and, and lacks direction and focus. I think I got involved in technology in the early 90s, moving on the commercial side of the business. And uh, I, I realized that just it was going to be technology and it was going to be kind of the commercial side sales, business development. I'm generally extroverted. If you kind of look at those five personality traits that Malcolm Gladwell describes, I'm high to the right on all of them. I have extroversion, very agreeable. I want to keep working hard. And, and so everything around that got me into business development sales. And for a while, I realized I was pretty good at it. And so what I tell everyone that I meet is I just worked very hard at setting simple goals for myself. I got into sprint early on in my career and it doesn't happen as much anymore, but you can still do it is back then, you know, I'm 57. So what that means is I'm old enough to call all my mistakes experience now. And so, but one thing I didn't make a mistake with is back then the sprints and the IBMs and the the Xeroxes, these companies used to send you away for training. They used to make this, you have to get these little pieces of paper that taught you your discipline. You executed your discipline for a year to two years, and then you'd be eligible for promotion. And then you kind of continued. So you had this foundational base and everybody went through it. No one did a shortcut. That doesn't exist today. You know, now it's, they throw you into the arena. The people who find the edge of the pool fastest survive. For a short term, the ones who don't, they drown. They're out of the pool. They throw another batch in. The guys who are in the pool learn how to swim faster. And hopefully if they start swimming by themselves in three to nine months. Suddenly they get promoted to management because they did something that no one else could do. You just swim in the pool. This corporate education, this personal development doesn't exist anymore. So it's really difficult. But for me, I found what I was good at and I just continued to execute on it. And then the moment I had an opportunity to start my own company, which is about 10 years later from around 2002, I took it and you get to do everything, right? You're chief cook and bottle washer. That's not for everyone because my wife was pregnant with our second child. I was out of work and I really had to make this going. And oh, by the way, I was starting a data center company in 2002, right after the big crash of 2001. Everyone with a brain cell was saying, you're nuts, you're crazy, don't do that. It worked out okay. And I would tell you that that type of risk is not for everyone, but it panned out for me. And then 
from there, it was just continuing to build on that. And as soon as I got closer to some of the private equity folks in the world and closer to some of the capital sources of the world, my career took off even further. So started in commercial, took one big risk, knew I was good at the commercial side of the business, learned finance, learned corporate development, learned operations, learned construction. But if I had to say what's my subject matter expertise or SME, I would be the commercial side. But I, I learned the others and here I am. Fascinating. What led you to go to Sprint in the first place? Were you excited about technology as a child? Is that, I'm not even yeah. sure. It's today. If you told them what you did at Sprint, I'm not sure a child, a teenager, a 20 something today would call it technology. No, uh, no. So my father was a DECI, Digital Equipment Corporation. I learned to program on a PDP-8. And so we had a little bit of technology in our DNA, in our household. I was doing human resource work at like, I don't know if you remember, there was like a Kelly staffing services or Norell services. I was doing that in my young, early 20s and then said, this was good because I was working with people, getting, helping with that kind of human connection and that extroversion that I suffer from. But I knew at some level I had to figure out a way into technology. And at the time, MCI Sprint and AT&T were always looking for salespeople. Because if you remember, that was kind of the long distance war, the commercial wars of post-84 Telecom Deregulation Act. This was where competition was great. And so young, hardworking people could get a break. The one correction I'll make is that, and I think we run a pretty wide gamut with the audience for the podcast. Obviously, it's people within our industry and people that are interested in things in our industry. That extroversion is a superpower. There's no question about it. So I'm not sure it's something you're afflicted. If, if you're afflicted with it, everyone should try to get that disease. Uh, I thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, I think that was it. And listen, one of my great mentors, an old attorney, Mr. Martin Brookstein, New York City, would scratch my back. And I said, I got lucky, Marty. And he'd say, Ash, you positioned yourself to get lucky. So I tell kids all the time, you work hard to position yourself to get lucky. And there's a concept right now around find your passion, do what you, what you dream of doing. I dreamed of being a, the shortstop for the Red Sox, okay? I didn't do very well against that dream, okay? Just so we're clear. But now <laughs> I can afford to go as many Red Sox games as I want, and I'm very happy to be a fan. I found that I could take my, my, my extroversion and my ability to make human connections into, a, into a, a sales arena, and then I found a passion for technology. So I tell kids, find what you're good at. If you can find what you're good at and just be really good at it for as long as you can, things will work out. The, the whole concept of finding your dream, eh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think it's as oh, practical. I mean, yeah, I think that that in, in itself could be a long, extensive conversation. Yes. Finding your passion with direction. Yes. Um, and then identifying if you're good enough uh, or you've got the skill set or the desire to make that investment of time and effort will determine if you're going to be able to accomplish that or if you need to deviate from it. So that's that in itself. It's a discussion, uh, yep. but I, I totally get your point. I think it's identifying your lane or the swim lane and, and getting good at it and making I'll that make, good. I'll make one, one point on that, which is 
It's really about enjoying yourself. Like find the thing that you enjoy. I think people think enjoying themselves for passion. Like the the passion is is such a subjective uh, type of phrase. But if you you find something that you enjoy and that's what you can do in order to make money, then it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Uh, So it's really trying to find the flip side of like the miserable work life, the punt card lifestyle that people are trying to avoid and reconciling that with what you, what value you can actually bring that doesn't feel like work. And if you can do that, then that's, it's it's magic. But there is a concept in behavioral economics and you've read all the same guys, Taylor and Kahneman and et cetera. If you're good at something, even though it's something you didn't love to do, and people keep telling you you're pretty good at it, guess what happens? You start loving it. Right. And, and you like enjoy an it. To me. Because, because confidence is one of those very elusive things that kids today, workers today, are they getting enough confidence to continue to do a good job at what they're doing? And then when they do a good job, you get rewarded and then you kind of like it more. So I think all of what we said builds on each other. And I'm happy that I was able to find my path, but I've got three boys, 25, 21, and 18, and they're all doing different things. One's trying to be a stand-up comic in Los Angeles. The other guy's working for a music startup. And the other one's just starting his freshman year in September at university. Totally different path than I took. And I don't know what they like to do yet. So it's not very shy. So I get yeah, they certainly are an outgoing personality. That's the common denominator. Or extra words. That, that's in the gene mix over there. Yeah, big. Now, it sounds like that you, growing up, you had a little bit of influence with tech in your family. Uh, are any of your siblings in the industry in any way, form, or shape? No, it's exact. It was just my brother and I. And he's a doctor, a dentist in the New England area, lives in Massachusetts, practices in New Hampshire, and is a captain in the Navy Reserves every other weekend. And so we're extremely proud of his service to the country. But I would tell you that was something that I think is interesting. When your father immigrates here, there's definitely a pride and a motivation to not let him down and not let your mother down. And I think both of us didn't always work that hard. I wasn't always a great student and I struggled in school and university in terms of sitting in classrooms and doing that stuff. But I think now at the ripe old age of 86 and and 79, dad and mom, I think they would say, "Hmm, not bad. I think we did okay. Just to share a little story, we had at Cyrus One, we got to ring the bell on the NASDAQ. And I told this story recently, I was at a family wedding and we we were allowed to have a guest. And I called dad and I said, pop, why don't you come and have, come and ring the bell. And he's got to drive from bus. Cause at what time do they do that? I said, it's pretty early in the morning, pop. You'd have to leave. Oh my God, the traffic. Do I really have to deal with the traffic? I said, listen, dad, I think mom would really enjoy it. It's the NASDAQ. It's ringing the bell. I don't want to push you. I get it. At the time he was 80-ish, 81 or 79. And, uh, but just, I'll leave you with this thought. You, you emigrated to this country in 1965. Your son was born here. And in one generation, we're on the management team that's going to ring the bell at Times Square for the NASDAQ. 
I don't know what you thought in 1965, what it was going to look like, but I think maybe, just maybe, this was a kick in the coverage here, and you might consider this a, a good accent to that. Fast forward 24 hours, he calls me back. He's like, yeah, your mother would really like it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, did you just say that you're proud of me? I'm still waiting for that. No waiting. <laughs> the levels of success that Tesh long, is long, long way of looking for dad's approval <laughs> and not finding it. Haven't still, we all lived that? Exactly. Exactly. Still, still looking for it. But that, but I think it's a, I think when you look at around, I think that, that is a good motivator. And you see kids who are immigrants or single parents have dyslexia. People who they call those desirable adversities, right? They make them stronger. There's a lots of kids who benefit from that. And, and I'd say that give those kids a shot at becoming entrepreneurs, giving him a shot at STEM, and they will do great. Get them focused on this. That's certainly our hope. So uh, did your parents move from India? Correct. Both, yeah. both from South India, Eastern, Southeast India. Dad had lived in, obviously, India, Germany, London, and then the U.S. Mom just in the U.S. and India. So. Well, yeah, well, I would say they certainly should be very proud parents for what you have been able to accomplish in your life. Walk us through the journey from Sprint. I see that you went to some advanced radio telecom. Mm -hmm. Still in the telecom business and then about net. How did you get engaged in the data center business? So my dad was always a big company guy. And that was kind of the the thing. He worked at Honeywell and digital equipment. And, and then digital equipment got acquired or digital equipment got acquired by Compaq. Compaq got acquired by HP. And he stayed. Like at all those times, he had an opportunity to leave. Multiple times in that time in his, in his career, he had an opportunity to go to California, become part of a startup. Many of his contemporaries did that. They probably made more money. They probably got bigger titles, but that wasn't that. It was steady, loyal. Digital gave him an opportunity. And I thought I was kind of in that mold, not even close. I, I started at Sprint and Sprint at the time was a pretty big company, number three behind AT&T and MCI in the U.S.'s long distance market. They, the, the whole thing was enticing you with the corner office and you had to do those two years and then you get structure and you do two more years. I didn't have time. And again, my ADD was too persistent and it was just driving me crazy. I needed to move. When I realized that I couldn't, I got promoted pretty quickly and got a branch manager's job. Then I wanted the next one. And they were like, no, you've only been a branch manager for two years. I said, but I've outperformed everyone. I, I got to go. They're like, Sorry, you can't do it. I'm like, I'm out. And, and so I realized that there's those smaller companies gave you bigger opportunities to touch more things. And so that's Advanced Radio Telecom was a point-to-point -point wireless solution. Uh, they just bought a bunch of licenses. And uh, before it was cool. That exactly. It was wireless before. It was so the other, the, before you, you guys probably remember a company called Telligent. That was just before Telligent, Advanced Radio Telecom came out. Bottom line is startup, lesson learned, worked over there. I started the New York office. They were headquartered in Bellevue, Washington, because that's where the capital was. And that's when they bought the licenses. Uh, got to set up the office, got to 
create the sales, create the marketing. It was fantastic. And then we folded because we didn't sell enough. Lesson number one, never be 3,000 miles away from a startup's headquarters. <laughs> so I learned that. I learned that valuable lesson. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the opposite of absence makes the heart grow fonder. 100%. And, and you think about today, we're in remote offices and feels like we're 3,000 miles apart, but feels like we're in the same room. Right. In, in 1991, it didn't feel like that. You were stopping at the phone on the Jersey Turnpike and putting your calling card in and seeing if you could dial into the Washington call. Kids out there, a calling card was a thing. What? I can't explain it. Look it up on Wikipedia, but it was- Exactly. What's a calling card? And you stopped on the highway to make a phone call? You mean you didn't keep driving? How did you bent mode to the phone? How did you, how did that interaction happen? Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny though, that call on the Jersey Turnpike, it never dropped. It never dropped. We'll go up the Jersey Turnpike. Your call will drop four times. We've given up quality for mobility. And a bit of wires. Yeah. I'm all in. Screw wires. (laughs) (laughs) But but it was, so yeah. So Advanced Radio Telecom, and I just realized that going smaller was was better for me because I do more things. And so I have a belief that there's five stages of a company. Zero, and this is all based in revenue. Zero to one million, million to 10. 10 to 100, 100 to a billion, billion plus, okay? Each one of these things is a 10X jump in size of company. You got to find which size company you're good at. There's some really good guys that are some fantastic institutional managers that know how to run a large organization and they do they do work on this billion plus. I've always kind of been in this middle area. And only recently have I started focusing on this billion plus side. And I found that this is also the area where you can create the most wealth for yourself and have the most fun. And, and these, but you, you, each person's different. Being a a senior vice president at a big company like an AT&T or Amazon or something like that is way different than being a senior vice president at a company with a hundred million, ten million dollars in revenue, and and so, if I were to tell anyone, find where you're going to do well at. And I talk to capital sources, and I tell them the same thing. I talk to operators, find which one you're good at. Right, but you can't do that unless you try them all. Right. So you went from the giant institutional thing to you went you went straight from pinky to thumb. Nobody can we'll actually release videos now going forward. Right. So you went straight from pinky to thumb. I've yeah. always covered around thumb, thumb and index finger. Yeah. I, I love to break it to other ones, but you won't return my calls. But, yeah. but experiencing all of that, had you not experienced, to a certain extent, the excitement that went with the advanced radio telecom position, but also how quickly that excitement can turn into just, we're not here anymore. It was like that. That yeah. is thinkable in a place like Sprint, that anything changes with that speed. Uh, so, yeah, it changes fast. And, but there were three lessons kind of learned there, right? So I told you about being 3,000 miles away from corporate headquarters in a startup. You don't want to do that. I mean, there's no video call. The large corporate experience with the, they just enticing you and they kept you in your stair-step approach about blocking and tackling and moving up every two years. That was good. But the other thing that I learned there is that because when I got to Metromedia Fiber Network and we went public, you have to have a mentor or a champion. 
I would tell every person, find one. And I'd find one everywhere. Find one for every aspect of your life. Find a hero that you like, that you admire, that you would you know, like. To, and someone who you know, like the way he runs his marriage, ask him questions about being married. I've been married 30 years. I screw up every day. I'm still hoping I get it right. I found mentors at Metromedia. Howard Finkelstein who was later on my board at NYC Connect, who was the CEO, an unbelievable mentor, taught me how to think rationally, taught me how to be a critical thinker and analyze a balance sheet, analyze operations. He was maniacal about it and very good. Nick Tanzi, who was also at Metromedia, Fiber and AboveNet, unbelievable commercial mind, born in Brooklyn, raised there, a deal maker out of the back, was probably selling fireworks out of the back of his car as a high schooler and was always making a deal. But he was also the earliest guys in ATM and X25 and Frame Relay, the early uses for fiber. And so when I was at fiber, he knew the application, he knew the hardware guys, and we were off to the races and he knew how to cut a deal and he taught me that. So learning early on in my career, I'm still not 30 years old and now I've got mentors and I know, and now I'm starting to figure out what I like. And now I'm getting into that age between, you know, you, you got to find out what you can do. You got to take that the 10 years between 22 or 25 and 35 to figure out all those things. And once you've kind of figured it out by 35, it's just execute, 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 because you got 20 years at that point, 20, 35 to 55 to really make some hay. How did you... Yes, how did you go? We have 10 years left. What's that? We have 10 years left. I'm, I'm past my prime. I'm, Don Lemon would say I'm, I'm over the hill. I'm, I'm already done. I heard 55 is the new 45. So I think, I think, I think. I'm old. Yeah. My hairline reflects it at 73. So I may be in real bad time. Poor, poor you. But I see that to me with a great face. I used to be 95 years old by that metric. All right, Nabil, real question. Go ahead. How did you identify these people and how did you go about asking for help or asking them to be your mentors? I think it was twofold. First and foremost, you got to perform. If you're not a performer on your own at some level, because if you go asking for help and you haven't exhausted all possibilities and or performed pretty well on your own, people just aren't going to waste their time. It's a harsh reality of life. You can polish a rock, but it won't become a diamond unless it was a, a diamond in the rough. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I say it this way. We probably all have friends that we've coddled and mentored and put our arms around for years and for years. They just don't, they don't quite get there to where, what you want to do. They may even be a family member. And, and so in my personal life, I have a lot of time for rehabilitation. No one has that in their professional life. So they want to help and they, they love it. Everybody wants to be a coach and a mentor if they find the right student. But the student has to give them something in return, which is success. And so started off was I was pretty successful. I did, did some nice deals. I learned my lessons well, great support. But then when I went to them the next time and I said, I need something more, they were like, okay, do this. And so it always became this, I'm going to move your cheese a little bit further. I'm going to move the carrot out a little bit further. Can you get to that new carrot? Yes, great. 
and uh, and they weren't afraid to weren't afraid to use the stick either. Um, I screwed up pretty bad early on, and when you find a true mentor, they'll use your screw ups as an opportunity to teach you a valuable lesson. They'll brush you off and then send you on your way. Go run the next play. A bad mentor will hold it over your head, will use it to demotivate you or take leverage on you. And you got to be able to identify both. I happen to have two good mentors and it set me up perfectly for when I started my own business. Well, you're certainly one of the fortunate ones and the smart ones to figure it out. What would you tell the younger generation, knowing which today, especially with us living in the data rush economy and data being the future? What are the opportunities and what are some of the, the elements of the industry that we are in that they should entertain? So that's a great question. And it's personal to me because Phil knows this. My tagline on my email says data brings us together. So I'm a big believer that the more information we can get up people, the smaller the world become. Let me give you a historical perspective and then, and then fast forward to today. Throughout history, there have always been people who are just negative and will tell you all the evils of what's going to happen. And on, on occasion, for short periods of time, we have seen some bad things happen. But if you look at the last hundred years, okay, we went from the Great Depression in this country to probably the greatest accumulation of wealth on the history of the planet, no questions asked. And it's just a hundred years. And that's the beauty and the curse of life, right? It goes fast and it can go very slow, but it's not that long. 10 years, long time, but it's not that long. We can all know where we were 10 years ago. So right now, there's this lot of mixed talk about where we are in STEM, internet, and especially when you mentioned two vowels, AI. History has proven has shown us that as technology continues to evolve, man has stood alongside it. And yes, there's a certain amount of disruption for some short amount of time, but then man takes it and it explodes. I still believe running water is in the top two to three greatest inventions of all time when you think about irrigation and agriculture and hygiene, what it's done. I put it ahead of a lot of other things. Number two is the internet. And if you live in New York or New Jersey, number three is easy pass. Okay. Easy. I, would, I would push that to number one. And there you go. <laughs> but yes, no question. But so right now, there's lots of talk about AI and its negative impacts on society. Yesterday, um, I don't know when you're going to air this, but on May 22nd, there was a, there was a fake explosion at the Pentagon picture that went viral and it was validated by a fake blue check mark from Twitter. So you had multiple series of fake things compounding itself. And it, if you pause and say, what happens? Oh my God, the world's going to come to an end because some lunatic can do that. That's not true. It hasn't been true with the wheel. It hasn't been true with the tractor. It hasn't been true with... So it's not going to be true with AI. There's We're probably going to put some sort of point on it that says this was, it's just the same way you have a food label 
It has 250 calories, six grams of protein. And six. The moment they, someone's going to make sure that everyone puts an AI label on it. This is an AI production and it had this much thing on it. It had this much protein and it had this much fake pictures and it had this much fake words or AI produced pictures and words and, and rhetoric. And then we're going to know, okay, that's that. And then you're going to know that the rest of it was kind of man, man uh, had his finger prints on the rest of it. And we're going to go and say, okay, that's great. And when people start violating that and they produce it and say, oh, it's all mine, they're going to get in trouble. And the same way that we learn to live that way, generally speaking, people don't want to hurt each other. Generally speaking, people want to be helpful. So I think if I were to tell every anyone right now, AI has been, it, it's, it's going to be fantastic. I can only imagine what's going to happen in the fields of education, healthcare, linguistics. It's just going to be unbelievable. So get involved, figure out where you want to be in that, in that, in that big spectrum of things that it's going to impact. And my guess is over the next 25 years, even though we will have a little dip here in certain professions, they're young enough, I'll be gone. But in 25 years, they can see the next great boom and enjoy that. So, yeah. that, well, so that would be my I, message. I, I, your I, 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 so you still, you still got time. You still got time there. <laughs> yeah, we will just get along with the AI discussion as well. There was a recent mission critical interview that was published there, talked a little about artificial intelligence and my ideas as to what AI really is. Intelligence, in my view, can never be artificial. And AI's definition should be actionable intelligence versus artificial intelligence. But we'll get to that hopefully in an in-person discussion. I, I know for a fact that it was actually AI that gave that interview. So the joke's on everyone. <laughs> well, that was my doppel doppelganger, Phil, or digital twitter. I, I have a full circle question. I'm gonna get, we're going to get back to the horn of Africa. There, I said horn again. And the internet as a medium, the only reason why someone sitting in Greenwich, Connecticut can be the CEO of a company that is entirely based on the horn of Africa. And what the pandemic has accelerated, I know for a fact in your career, you have dealt with all sorts of commercial real estate and real estate and trends and the pandemic has accelerated this movement from oh, we all have to be in an office in the commercial real estate building to we're going to we're stepping back hybrid work. People won't even take jobs anymore if they're required to go into the office and then people freak out and they're like, you have to go to the office because we're paying for this big office and there's going to be probably some fallout in the commercial real estate market in the near term as leases come to term and all that. What is your feeling on all of that? What like the commercial real estate sector? and how it is integrated with technology, with connectivity, with all the, what is the future of work, Tesh? Answer the question now. God, <laughs> fill in the next word. This, yeah, is, a, this is PG-13? Is? This is PG-13? No. Oh. no. Okay. You could curse uh, all you God, want. Great question. I sit on the board of a public real estate company, and I was recently asked to give a talk to them, and I chose this topic. And very similar to what we talked about with AI in the commentary, there's no question that the workforce has been disrupted by the pandemic and technology. But with every culture, there's a counterculture. And the, the culture of being working remote 
has created, and you see it in every survey, lack of mentorship, lack of camaraderie, lack of communication, lack of advancement, lack, 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 lack. lack. That's, what I'm, that's one, just from a, from a career perspective. Then there's the emotional side, the EQ side of this whole thing. And these devices have created isolationism, lack of stimulation, depression. These are some of the negatives of the technology. And if you're not aware of it, you should be. And the good news is, as a side note, is that we talk about it more. 25 years ago, you wouldn't talk about your aunt's C word. You'd whisper. Now we, now we talk about it freely and you'd never talk about someone's mental health or mental wellness. And now we talk about it. So it, now the fact that it's out there, we can talk about it. The more we normalize it, the better it is for all of us. My belief is that we have definitely swung the other way and people are getting used to that and they like it. But they also like the other aspects. Trust, increased performance, collaboration, that feeling of being part of a team, participation. Those are all things that we used to get from the office. There is going to be a movement back. Because at the end of the day, we're all human and we need connections. Even if you're an introvert, I'm extroverted and I may make 10x more connections in a course of a day or a week or a month. But even the person who's 10x less, I mean, it means he still needs one connection and he's not getting it from a screen or she's not getting it from a screen. So my belief is that especially if you're between the ages of 25 and 45, that 20 year span where you're really focused on getting, building those connections, building camaraderie, building trust, building friendships, finding a, a spouse, a partner, those happen in the workforce. And I think we're going to come back to that. Not because some CEO said you got to be in the office or some guy get bought 15,000 square feet more than he should have and he's demanding that people use it. Not because of any of those reasons, because it's the right thing to do and people will feel better. Okay. And that's a belief. And I think what I told the, they call it the old hands call was I think you're positioned exactly in the right spot because you're seeing a corporate dip. Everyone's going to right-size their corporate leases. What we're seeing, we're redoing our lease in London. I'm seeing it happen on the board that I sit on. They're taking nicer space, but less of it to make it more interconnected on a personal and human level, not on a technology level. We already have all we need from a bits and bytes perspective. If I were in South Africa, this interview would look exactly the same. If I was in London, it would look exactly the same. So we've already done that. What we haven't done is what this interview would look like if we we're all in the same room together, sharing a pint and yucking it up. And that's what we're going to want to get to. And you're seeing it. Why would a CEO go all the way in to the CNBC studios for Kramer when he can do it virtual? Why would a CEO go to Squawk Box when they can, it's a, it's a 10 minute segment for, you're going to take two hours out of your day right. for if not minutes. more. Yeah. Why are they doing okay. that? Because it's better. You get a human connection. I can look you in the eye. You can look me in the eye. We bond. Humans are, we need human connections to survive. And I think that is why the office is going to come back. 
It's definitely suffering a hangover and it's out of vogue right now, but I believe it's going to come back. And you see it, we see it. We live, well, I'm in the States about 40%, 50% of my time. And when I'm here, I try to get into New York City once a week. It's still the best city in the world. Best restaurants. I think you make a, you make an amazing point, which is like this 2D experience. It's authenticity can't be provided in this type of environment. Clearly it can be provided by me, but like the norm, the mortal people cannot deliver authenticity on this medium. And it's one thing to have a conversation with someone that you have had 20 years of that in-person experience with, and then you transition. But the people that are coming into the workforce at this time are going to be like significantly behind because they never got to experience it. So I think a lot of the people that claim it's never coming back are the ones that experience the office and they like already got everything out of it that they would have otherwise and are not recognizing the value of, of the in-person school and or the in-person office environment. And a lot of that has a corollary to how quickly parents were like shoving their kids out the door to go back to school. Right, right, you know, it's, it's 100%. Just, it's exactly the same. And and people need the experience because that's where, like you said, those connections are built. Yep. And it's one thing for you, me, and Nabil not to necessarily go into an office every day because we've established these relationships. And yep. frankly, I need time in between me taking selfies with everybody across the country to post on my LinkedIn. Exactly. But yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think there's a freak out on the precipice that it's going to be a storm that needs to be weathered like every other thing. Correct. No. Humans are very resilient. You're an English person living in London during the Blitz. I'm sure you thought the world was going to come to an end. And then the next day you woke up and you said, I got this. And on the third day, you're like, they can't hurt me. I'm just going to keep working. And and so call it so bad. Call it British stiff upper lip or call it whatever, call it luck, call it what you will. But there was a point there that it was, Okay, this is our new norm, and we're going to work through it. We're going through that right now. And in fairness, and we say this because there is a generation of people that have been able to optimize this stuff, right? So if you talk to gamers and kids who are playing games, and you like get off your game, go outside and play, they're like, Dad, I am. I've got seven kids on this thing. We're playing Call of Duty together. We're laughing and joking, et cetera. And they've learned how to do it. And same thing, I think, will go professionally. There are people similar to yourself who can build good relationships over the wireless lines and over Zoom or Teams, and they will do really well, right? Because they've been able to bridge that human connection through this. I think it's more difficult. And I think over time, you still would prefer to be in an office. And you you saw recently over the last two, 18 months, sales kickoff meetings have come back, celebrations for like President's Club trips and all those things have come back. I know that I've seen your PTC, ITW, all those confident record attendance, like record. That's what we're talking about. People thrive well, it, it that, because that's how people get to express themselves. That's how people get to establish those connections. And, and so I think, yeah, I think the, the office market is always like 30 seconds longer. Yeah, uh, I think the office market, to answer your question directly, is going through a slight disruption. It will see probably anywhere from a 10 to 15 percent adjustment 
in overall value. But I think it's going to come roaring back in a different phase where maybe people aren't in the office on a Friday, but they'll be there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. Like anything, it's a matter of creating balance. So, well, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. It's certainly been very exciting and wonderful. A key takeaway for me was to find a hero you love, admire, and prove yourself and let them mentor you. Tash, thank you so much for your time and the words of wisdom and what you're doing in Africa. And hopefully we can find some time to meet you in person and help with your endeavors out in Africa. Well, I'm an eternal optimist who has a drinking problem. So let's get together and share a pint and uh, talk about the world. So I'm look, gonna, look. Look, looking at your LinkedIn, I'm going to go with the drinks on you. And fair enough. All right. Cheers, guys. Thank Have you. a nice. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.